Amen. Thank you, band, also. Awesome, as always. Happy Sunday. My name is Travis Bond. I serve as senior pastor here. Quick commercial, um, men's retreat three weeks away. We, um, like it was mentioned earlier, we got a a solid group signed up, nice cross-section of the church. But honestly, guys, the women had like 100 ladies at their thing, and they drove through a hurricane and a monsoon at the same time (laughs) to do it, so we cannot let the the ladies uh, um, beat us there. Um, Honestly, I'm more excited about this one probably than any of the retreats since I moved here back in 2010. Um, I think our men's ministry leadership team has done bang up work. They, they, they found the right price point. It is not expensive at all. Um, they found the right time. It's going to be cold in November, but it's like a good manly cold, you know. Um, they found the right location, a uh, gorgeous spot um, up in New Hampshire, not even two hours away from here. Uh, admittedly, the speakers are a little bit sketchy for the weekend. But Pastor Carl, Pastor Don, uh, and myself, if nothing else, we're going to have a fun time uh, teaching, and I think we actually have some good ideas uh, for the weekend. So men, long-time members, all the way to first-time guests this morning, this is a great way to connect with other guys. We leave on Friday, the 18th of November. We're back before dinner on Saturday. You can register on our website, like most of our stuff, under the News and Events tab. Um, And that's it. End of commercial. So let's do a quick high-level review, if, if you'll indulge me. Why is Medway Community Church here? What are we about? What's our purpose? What's our vision? If you know it, and you don't have to cheat by looking at the back of the bulletin where it's written every single Sunday, say it with me. At Medway Community Church, our vision is to be a community of grace making disciples of Christ. That wasn't too bad, although there was not a lot of passion there, so I'm kind of bummed out. (laughs) Our vision is to be a community of grace making disciples of Christ. Now, there's a lot behind that brief little sentence there, but we tried to make it short because if it's short, it's memorable, and if it's memorable, it's transferable. But then I was thinking to myself last night, uh, you know, um, we should probably just change that whole thing altogether. I just make these decisions, you know. That's how it works when you're a senior pastor because it really is too hard. You know, the whole making disciples thing. I mean, forget being a community of grace and showing grace to one another in all circumstances and all that that means that we're slow to be angry, we're quick to forgive, that we're not a church that tolerates the little little relational cracks that just form and then roots of bitter. That's hard. And then the whole making disciples thing, because some of you people are a real mess. (laughs) And you hired a guy is a real mess. So, and anyway, I come up with a new vision statement. I think this is really much better uh, and, it's, and it's doable. Um, you're going to be blown away. Are you ready? At Medway Community Church, our vision is to be Christian light. We will offer 25% fewer commitments. We will be home to the 7.5% tithe. 15 minute sermons, 45 minute worship services. Now I have your attention. We will lose just one testament, teach an 800-year millennium. Come on, that's funny. (laughs) 
sinners. <laughs> we will observe only eight commandments, your choice, which ones? <laughs> MCC, everything you've wanted in a church and less. All right, now satire, and I read that in a cartoon somewhere a while back. Satire only hurts if it cuts close to the truth. So here's the truth. I know that we're hearing all about various surveys and polls, and they're probably driving you as crazy as they're driving me, but um, I'm still going to throw one more at you. Uh, From a few years back now, Barna contends only 11% of self-described evangelicals can be described as deeply committed. He argues the majority of Americans who profess Christianity do not know basic doctrinal teaching and do not behave with any significant difference from their non-Christian friends. So what do you think? Does that ring true? Nationally? Um, Or here at MCC? Do we resemble Christian light? I mean, I hope not. On our our good days, I don't think so. But what does deeply committed faith look like? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to the the book of Acts chapter 17. Um, If you need to borrow one of the black Bibles in the pews, you'll find this text on page 926. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible's laid out on page 926, and if you're a first-time guest, um, it'll be, you'll be helped to know that we're, we're working through for some time now um, this book of Acts, which is all about the kind of the planting and the launch and the expansion of the early church. So at this point, we're you know, roughly a little bit past the middle of the book. We're traveling with Paul and Silas and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journeys. How many missionary journeys did Paul go on? Four. Three of them are in the Bible. One of them is strongly inferred by the Bible, but it's not covered by the Bible. So probably four. This is number two. Um, This morning, we're going to visit two towns. One town, this is kind of the outline for the sermon. One town displays great hostility. The other town displays remarkable nobility, and I think there's probably some stuff for us to learn there in the contrast between the two. So Acts 17, just the first 15 verses, I'm going to read it. Um, This is now the very word of our Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did, many, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Just a two-point sermon today, like I already implied there. Hostility displayed, that's the first one, and then we'll get to the next one. Um, You guys have heard about the the little boy on the farm out west. He was kind of a mischievous kid, and so uh, one morning he gathered up all of this particular hen's eggs And he put those away somewhere and he replaced them all with Easter eggs that the entire family had dyed all different colors. Well, when the hen came back in from her breakfast outside into the hen house and she saw the eggs that supposedly she had laid, she was absolutely shocked by this. But when the rooster came in and saw what was there, he immediately went back outside and beat up the peacock. (laughs) all right that's a terrible joke (laughs) but the peacock got a bum rap right and that's kind of how it's been if you for those of you who've been tracking with us over and over that's kind of how it's been for paul and his various missionary teams they keep getting a bum rap some of you old guys right um yogi berra uh, would watch roger maris back to back Mickey Mantle, repeatedly, game after game, they would hit these back-to-back home runs so that Yogi Berra famously said, it's deja vu all over again. And that's very much what we're watching here as the text unfolds. Um, deja vu all over again. The team, they go into a new city. They, they uh, often use the local synagogue as kind of a launching pad for the gospel. And then opposition arises. And all Paul was doing was preaching hope in Christ. So once again, here in Thessalonica, he gets a bum rap. He's preaching Christ. There's there's an urgency there in verse 3 in what he's saying. Um, I I think he was probably preaching the way that um, Robert Murray McShane long ago uh, died a young man, but he sure made the the most of the years that he had. Um, He quote preached as a dying man to dying men. Verses two and three of our text say that Paul reasoned, explained, proved that Christ was who he said he was. Which means Paul wasn't preaching Christian light. He, he wasn't preaching your best life now and the, and the power of positive thinking. Paul spoke of a savior 
who stepped into time with observable, empirical facts. He was promised under the old covenant. He's revealed now under the new covenant this true story of a loving God who pursues men and women down through the ages. It says in presenting all of that, Paul reasoned, he explained, and he proved. And the Thessalonians' response to the whole thing, some were persuaded, verse 4, but many were jealous. And so they raised up a mob, and they're hostile. And we think, what does hostility to the gospel look like? Christians sometimes, and it, it does us no favors when we have a persecution complex. How, do you, how can you spot real hostility to the gospel? Not in its extreme forms, but kind of in its latent, low-level forms. I think two things in this text, anyway. Um, hostility to the gospel means, number one, closed to reasoning. Paul wasn't tickling ears here. He was, he was laying out evidence. I, am, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for folks like our kick fourth and fifth grade teachers, um, Kyle Williams and Sarah Allen. Um, I get to teach up there tonight, and I'm kind of excited about it because what they've been working through with these elementary age kids is the case for Christ for kids, just kind of laying out to children who have minds and can think logically, although one would doubt sometimes. <laughs> I'm raising one of them. They have sharp minds, very much like a sponge, and just kind of laying out for them a step-by-step, reasonable presentation of why we can be confident in the Bible. That's what Paul was doing here. But the Thessalonians were closed to reasoning. It's a sure mark of hostility to the gospel. Closed to reasoning, and then number two, they were open to personal prejudice. You ever had that happen? I know you have. When you're talking to someone, and it becomes very clear, they, they, they're not interested. This conversation that I'm having right now is not about facts. They have determined because of who I am or where I'm from that they will be closed to me. This is becoming personal. And that's exactly what it looks like here in Thessalonica. It can certainly, hostility to the gospel, it can be more than this, but it's probably always at least this, closed to reasoning, open to personal prejudice. In fact, it's not just the mission team proper that has to face this. Their friends do as well. They're guilt by association, right? It's this man named Jason, verse five. We think he was probably an early convert and he's also their host. He's arrested, he's fined. Paul and Silas, for safety reasons, are sent south down to Berea. Um, But in Berea now, we discover a very different dynamic at play. So first header, hostility displayed. Second header, nobility conveyed. Nobility conveyed. <clears throat> I spend a fair amount of time um, most weeks on the treadmill. 
That may not be readily apparent to you, but it is true. Um, There's a fair amount of heart issues in my family. And so now as I approach that magical age of 40, I'm fairly cognizant of this and have been for a little while yet. Um, I don't mind running outside, but I honestly, I hate running on the treadmill. Um, If the doctor tells me next week, Trav, you are terminal, here's what I will do. I will kiss my wife. I'll hug my kids. And then I'll pour lighter fluid all over the treadmill. (laughs) And I will light that thing up. And I will dance around the flames. Which would be awkward because it's at the YMCA. And they probably would find (laughs) out. But (laughs) I hate running and going nowhere. Too many of us, depending on your Christian background, you know exactly what that feels like. The, the treadmill of spiritual performance, right? All different back. Go to another mass. Take another sacrament. Give a little more. Stop thinking bad thoughts. You're still thinking bad thoughts. Try harder to stop thinking bad thoughts. And it just on and on it goes. And it's exhausting and depressing. We're running and running to do more, work harder, and all the while just getting older and chubbier and grumpier. And then the gospel touched down in your life. Maybe it was a sermon you heard. Maybe it was a friend over a cup of coffee. Maybe it was cry night up at Camp Berea. Maybe it was just you getting alone with your Bible and reading it. And for the first time, the Holy Spirit pressed the truth that was on the page into your heart that the righteous shall live by And now you get it. It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone that I'm saved. And finally, I can hit that emergency stop on the blasted treadmill of spiritual performance and step off and know that does not define who I am standing before God. Finally clicked for you. You remember that day? When you finally understood It's not a duty to be performed or a reward to be earned. But instead, you read the Bible and you think, oh, this is like like when a parched man falls down beside the riverbank and he drinks. Now, the Bereans, I'm at verse 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. The word noble there is eugenes. It um, translates out literally honorable of mind. It's related to eulogio, uh, eulogy, which is typically when we say, you know, the very best about somebody. The word, in other words, is not talking about nobility by birthright, Um, We often think that way, you know, the old feudal system, right? You got the nobles and you got the peasants. This is not that. This is an issue of transformed character. In other words, it's not talking about your parents 
or your portfolio or your prestige. It's talking about your response to the word of God. Be noble. Not everyone in this room on any Sunday claims to be a Christian. I I totally understand that. And can I just say to you, if, if that's you and you're just kind of exploring this stuff, man, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Um, and I would love to sit down with you one-on-one and chat more and more deeply about these things. But if I can talk to those who are Christians for just a moment um, and maybe ask you to ask yourself, reflecting off of this text, are you living Christianity light? Do you ever have that, that sneaking suspicion that you are living lukewarm Christianity? Giving what's comfortable doesn't really change the way you live. Worshiping when it's convenient and only when it's convenient. Opening your Bible if you've got nothing else pressing. Or are we the kind of people who are driven by the Holy Spirit to pour ourselves into God's word with the good confidence that when we read us, it doesn't take long. That when we read the Bible, it doesn't take long before the Bible is reading us. I want to be a church that is noble, like the Bereans. So for the balance of this sermon, I'm going to borrow from an author named Kevin DeYoung. I'm going to try and be um, a little bit practical um, Maybe talk about some action items here, um, some principles that if we set aside hostility and we embrace nobility, this is part of what it looks like. So five, just five action items to pursue Berean-like nobility, and then we're out. Number one, I'll give you the easiest one first. Listen to the sermon with an open Bible. I know some of you have put it back in the pew already. I can't even see over the top of the pew, so it's okay. Some of you, because you got kids like working all of your lap space the entire sermon, you, you don't have a spot for a Bible. Listen, it's a no judgment zone, right? You know that. Um, but let me just say um, that, that there is no authority that comes through this pulpit. There ought be no authority that comes from this pulpit that is not derived from the very word of God. So do verse 11. Examine the scriptures to see for yourself if what the preacher is saying true. Some of you are gonna move away next year or in 15 years. And man, I hope whatever church you land in, when you go off to college, whatever campus church you start visiting, I hope you go with the church where the preacher is saying, check me on this. I've told you before, we could very easily put the entire sermon text up on the screen. We do have that technology, but I don't want to. Because as soon as we make you dependent on that and no longer opening the Bible in front of you, well, that is, it's not that long before the pastor just gets to start saying all manner of crazy stuff and you're not in the habit 
of checking them. This is a church that for a long time, I just met a dear woman back there. I'm not going to embarrass her by making her stand up. She just introduced me during the greeting time. Hey, my grandfather was the preacher here in the early 1900s. And guess what? They were still using the Bible then. We're still using it now. Be people who are examining the scriptures to see if what is said is true. Number two, don't rush from the Bible to the rest of your life. Don't rush from the Bible to the rest of your life. It says in verse 11, they examined the scriptures. They did not skim the scriptures. Um, I don't know what your habit is here. I'm inclined to believe it is far better to spend five unhurried minutes than 45 distracted ones. If your Bible is on a screen right now, that's fine. But, you know, during the week, like, use airplane mode. Because nothing will take you out of the Bible than those notifications that start popping up. Better yet, you could use one of those old-fashioned things they print on paper with ink. I hope that doesn't make me sound too old-fashioned. But listen, Bible study, it's a lot more crockpot than it is microwave. Do you know that? The Bible is the Bible study and biblical transformation. It's a lot more crockpot than it is microwave. That's just how it works. It's a slow boil. And I can speak with some authority on this because I tried to do a little bit of math. Um, over the last 12 to 14 years, particularly the last 12, I believe I've preached somewhere around 500 sermons. I used to average about 20 hours of sermon prep per. Now I'm at about 15 hours, which means I've spent somewhere between eight and 10,000 hours over the last decade and a half studying the Bible to deliver sermons. And more often than not, I can tell you, I stare at the text on Monday morning and I think to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But by the time I get to Thursday... Well, honestly, I'm still thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But invariably, by Friday, I've got some sense of what the text is speaking to my own heart, and I'm then able to pivot, hopefully, on the good weeks, to speak it a little bit to your heart as well. I read it every week, like 30 different times, the, the text, study the commentaries, play around a little bit with the original languages, and invariably, I start to see it with new eyes. And and I'm saying that because in this sense, sermon study is really not all that different from personal study. Obviously, the time frame for the vast majority of you is going to be different, but the principle is the same. Bible study is a lot more crockpot than it is microwave. So listen to the sermon with an open Bible. Don't rush from the Bible to the rest of your life. Number three, approach the Bible with eager expectation. It says in verse 11, they received the word with all, what's the word? Eagerness. Posture matters. You know, are we coming to the Bible with the arms crossed? Asking God to prove something to us? Or is it very much the lean forward approach? Where we say to our own soul, hey, I've been waiting all day for my lunch break. Or I've been waiting for the kids to finally take the nap so I can spend 
eight unhurried minutes with God's word. Number four, understand some things that claim to be from the Bible are not from the Bible. (laughs) Folks, if I had banked a hundred bucks every time someone prefaced a comment to me with, the Bible says, and then offered some kind of twisted paraphrase which was like vaguely scriptural, I would be ready to retire by now. To know a $20 bill by the, the feel of it, you know, to, to know a $20 bill by the texture of the fibers, like even the smell, if you could do that, well then wouldn't you be able to spot the counterfeit like that? That's how we gotta be, to be people of the word. That we reject Christian light and we say, we're gonna know God's word because God's word is the word of life. You do see the irony here, right? The Bereans were checking Paul by examining the Old Testament. And who, of course, is Paul? Well, he's the guy who wrote like a pretty big chunk of the New Testament. But they're not taking him blindly at his word. They're checking God's word to see if what he says is true. And then last one, number five, how can we be noble Christians like the Bereans? Last one, believe the Bible, no matter who you are. Verse 12, many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Education, accomplishments, socioeconomic status, it matters not. Have you personally confessed Christ as your Savior? Has there ever been a time where you've knelt down, gotten alone with God, and said, Lord, I'm going to place the authority of my life beneath your authority, and come what may, all the chips to the center of the table. I'm in. I'm all in. It's not about your parents, your portfolio, or your prestige. It's very much about placing your own rags of righteousness beneath the lordship of Christ. So yeah, at MCC, we're not going to do Christian light nor are we going to run the treadmill of performance to earn something at the end of the day. This church is going to be about, by the grace of God, we're going to be about thirsty women saying, I found where to get water. (laughs) We're going to be about hungry men saying, I found where to be given bread. Let's be noble people, Medway Community Church, because we've been adopted by a noble king. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. 
Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my